This episode of the Supply Chain Brain Podcast is supported by Seagrit, a leader in autonomous mobile robot systems for warehousing, logistics, and manufacturing. Be sure and stick around after the discussion for a look at the company and what it offers to customers. But now, on to the podcast. When it comes to automating a warehouse, buying the robots is only the beginning. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Robots have reached such a high level of functionality in distribution facilities today that it's tempting to think that they're all that's needed to meet the increasing demands of e-commerce shoppers for near-instant gratification of their orders. And it's true that the technology is key, but there's also the matter of how and where you implement it and what role human beings continue to play. Because like it or not, they won't be disappearing from the warehouse anytime soon, notwithstanding the odd lights-out facility. On this episode, we get guidance on the proper approach to implementing automation with the help of Jeff Christensen, Vice President of Product with Seagrid. We'll talk about how warehouses can gain acceptance of technology from the human workforce, how robots can be seamlessly integrated into the operation, and how companies can sell both workers on the warehouse floor and in the executive suite on the importance of embracing the technology. Here's my conversation with Jeff Christensen. Well, Jeff Christensen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bob. It's great to be here. Jeff, how do you think that changing customer demand is affecting the adoption of material handling automation today? Consumer demand is placing so much pressure on the supply chain right now. They are demanding more customized products, so closer to lot side of one and mass customization. They expect it to be delivered immediately and for free, and there's global competition. There's just tremendous consumer demand pressure that is being applied across the supply chain right now, it's, I think, almost unprecedented. And, and in fact, clearly the pandemic is unprecedented. And I think that that has accelerated and, and exacerbated some of that consumer demand. More people are ordering online and putting even more pressure on the supply chain. It's quite an extraordinary time, I think, that we are in right now if we're looking at the overall supply chain and the pressure and, and new demands that are being placed upon it. Do you think that the talent shortage is also driving more companies to look to automation solutions because they just can't find the people? There's no question. That was true prior to COVID, and it's certainly even more true now, and I think will continue to be true. The turnover rate is very, very high, and we see an awful lot of companies that just can't hit their top-line numbers given the talent pool and, and the labor that's available to them. They're shipping them in from multiple counties just to try to maintain pace, let alone grow. So yes, the, the shortage of labor to do these jobs and to create the productive output is unquestionably applying more pressure. 
So what types of specific automation are, are most popular now in terms of adoption and, and where is it being deployed? Well, I think the key to automation choices right now in the supply chain are things that will give you value without introducing risk. And with all of those pressures that we were just talking about, if I'm a company with all of that supply chain under siege, I don't want to add new risks by applying some new technology. I need to be lowering my overall operational risk. So designing with automation that helps address some of my consistency and cost pressures, as well as predictability and efficiency. So that's good, but I also need to have a lot of flexibility and adaptability. I need that automation to be able to change and morph and evolve in what it's doing for my operations and my business as those pressures and demands make me change as my business. So I think that's really what people are looking for and should be looking for is highly flexible automation. That tends to mean mobile automation as opposed to fixed or monument style automation, monument meaning like big conveyors or sortation or things like that, because that creates a a very rigid workflow and it doesn't give a lot of future flexibility. And it's also a a very large capital expense up front, which is increasing financial risk. So I think if you look through a risk mitigation lens as a customer, then you should be looking for mobile automation that will give you a return and a value today and is also highly adaptable and flexible as your needs change. Well, you talk about no risk, but isn't it the fact, though, that just the implementation of any kind of technology results in at least a temporary dip in productivity as staff gets up to speed on using it? That's a good point. One of the things, in fact, that we encourage companies to think about when they are evaluating automation is that it's not just the technology. It's not just the robots. I work for a robot company, so I clearly like robots and and I think that they're cool, but they are a means to an end. They're a, a tool in our box to solve a business challenge. And part of that business challenge is the technology, and that's great, but it's also the change management and the adoption and getting the people in your operations to adopt that new technology, to understand it, and then adapt it to their needs. And so you're absolutely right, is that leaning into that aspect of it is frankly just as important as the technology itself. Interesting, if not a little bit ironic, that the big roadblock to implementation of tech would be that of humans, (laughs) at least in adopting it and accepting it and the like. Uh, But there's also technological issues as well. I mean, you're bringing in a system that has to play nice with all the other systems, with the ERP, with the warehouse management system. That's got to be at least something of a concern, integration, right? It can be, although, again, if, if you're thinking through uh, risk mitigation lens, go incrementally. You don't need to design everything on your wish list on day one. In fact, I would encourage you not to. Think about it incrementally. Go for continual improvement cycles. So if that means that you can introduce mobile automation, maybe get some of that change management and personnel adoption associated with one specific application, and then build from there, you can build another one that is maybe tied to the first one. Maybe the next one is integrated into your WMS. It doesn't have to be the first one. So you can think about it as a pathway and you don't have to swallow the whole thing all at once because, again, that's going to increase a little bit of the risk profile. It increases your upfront costs and it's probably going to delay the return and the payback that you're going to get. So I would encourage 
companies to think small, start small, start now, but also think big. Think where it's going to go, but start small. Let's get back to the human element, though, because there's almost always some level of pushback by humans when you introduce technology, new technology, into an operation. So how do you promote user adoption? What are some things that a company can do in order to head off any potential opposition or slowdown due to the innovative nature of these new applications? That's certainly true, and this is not a new phenomenon for robotics. This has been the case almost throughout human history. Whenever new tools are introduced, there's a process of change that is associated with the adoption of them. And so I think that we can learn from some of those other technologies that have already gone through this cycle going way back. If if you think of the term Luddites that's coming from handloom weavers in the early 1800s that thought the mechanical loom was going to be the destruction of all employment forever. Clearly, that was not the case, but it's now sort of exemplifies the resistance to change and a resistance to new technology. So from a strategy perspective, clearly you want the technology itself to be highly usable and you want companies to be able to take the reins and have the control themselves and not be reliant on a vendor to come in and and make changes and things like that. They should be able to be empowered to do that on their own. They should have trust in that system. And trust is a complicated concept, really, coming from a technologist. But that is essential, really, to this change. And so to build that trust, that means that you show people how it's being used. You explain the value that it's bringing both to them individually and to the company and the operations. You let them try it. You make sure that they're very comfortable with it, that they have high confidence in it, that that, that it's not intimidating at all. And from a services perspective, there's a lot of training that can be done. There's videos that can be shown. There's a strong repetition of those concepts, as well as frankly, some good old-fashioned hand-holding, having some people there from the vendor that can be in there to help that transition to make sure that not just that the technology works, but that the people work with the technology. Both are necessary. All right, that's how you sell it on the, so to speak, warehouse floor. What about at the executive level? I mean, in some ways, you would think executives would be very much incentivized to acquire this type of technology. But at the same time, the demand today is for just instant or at least rapid return on investment. So how do you make the case for ROI with executives in order to make these investments happen in the first place? Well, there's no question that it is a financial value proposition at the executive level to be moving toward mobile automation. So it is an ROI story. When we go into a facility and are are talking to customers, we bring industrial engineers in to speak their language, to make sure that we understand what the flows are, where are the proverbial low-hanging fruit. Here's an application where we can get a really rapid ROI and we have low barriers to adoption. That's a really good fit and we should start there. And then we can go to this as a step two and this is a step three and four, et cetera. And we can be establishing payback incrementally, just like we're doing risk reduction incrementally on the application side and the adoption side. So start small and then build out from there. And if you design the application, the application of the automation toward a specific outcome that is measured and you can quantify and anticipate what that payback is, then put that down on a piece of paper before you buy anything. 
and say, this is our expectation. This is exactly the problem that we're going to solve. This is how we're going to solve it. This is the expected return that we anticipate. And this is how we're going to measure our results against it. And then that gives the executive decision maker exactly what they need to know that this is a low risk, high value proposition. So we're talking about mobile robots as one strong aspect of automation in the warehouse and the distribution center. How do you think it's going to transform these facilities going forward in the years ahead? You mentioned conveyors and things like that, which is really old tech. Do you foresee a DC or a warehouse as being completely devoid of traditional automation such as conveyors and consisting entirely of these robots zipping around and having the facility look completely different in, in years ahead? Or will it just be sort of a step change from what we see today? I think it's maybe somewhere in between. I, I'm not certain that one specific style of automation or one specific tool is the best tool for all possible jobs. I think that there is a mix of different technologies for different aspects of the operation. And as much as I believe that mobile automation is an excellent choice for strong adaptability and flexibility and return, not every part of an operation requires those things. So I think that there's room for lots of different technologies, but I think that it will sway very significantly toward automation that is mobile because of the flexibility and adaptability that it permits in the future. So I suspect if it's an 80-20 today and it goes to a 20-80, I could see a, a pretty significant swing that way, but it doesn't necessarily have to get to 100%. Well, notwithstanding the even current day existence in a very small way of so-called lights-out warehouses where there are no people at all, it seems like most proponents of mobile robots and warehouse automation these days assure us that there will continue to be a strong role for humans going forward. Do you agree with that? I do. And in fact, that's one of the things that we say is we, we call it automation with a human touch. I think that the combination of the best value that humans can bring and the best value that robotics can bring, that's a really powerful combination. And trying to have robots compete directly with humans at human's strength is frankly an uncompetitive position for robots. So I, I think that, yes, there is definitely a cooperation between people and robotics. And the concept of a lights-out warehouse, I, I understand it theoretically. I don't understand it financially. The cost-benefit is not really great for that right now. And I would encourage companies to be thinking about the risks associated with that, the capital expense associated with that, and jumping all the way, going to zero to 60 in one step. It's just a very risky proposition. I would say go incrementally, and the bulk of the value is getting up to 80 or 90% automated. And the last 10 to 20%, the financial return may still encourage human labor to do those things. And, and that's great. I think that that's a good combination. Jeff, tell me a little bit about how Seagrid specifically is helping its customers meet the current challenges of the supply chain with automation solutions. Well, we take a very strong services aspect to what we offer to our customers in addition to the hardware and software of the technology products. 
The robots, of course, we love the robots and we're very proud that we are a market leader in the robot space right now. And that's great. And we're very proud of the 6 million miles that we have driven in production environments at customers. And so that proves that the robots themselves work. But the adoption is, as I mentioned, just as important as the technology. So we really lean into all three legs of the proverbial stool, if you will, the hardware and the software and the services. And we go to customers to try to help them transition primarily from manual operations into a partial automation and then more and more complete automation and help plot that path for them. I think that the market right now is still being disrupted. There's still a lot of new technology and that's very exciting. But what it means for companies who are considering it is that they really need to be thinking about how they manage the change and how they figure out the best way of transitioning. And that's something that we really lean into. We have a small army of industrial engineers that go out and help customers with exactly that to make sure that they're really understanding what problem they want to solve and that they're applying the right tool set to that problem. What does a Seagrid robot do today? I mean, it might be a wide range of applications, but just paint a picture for me of what your robots are actually doing. Our robots are large form factor, so we're moving pallets. And if you think of moving uh, or pallet-sized products, so that's generally 1,000 to 10,000 pounds at a time. And we are in manufacturing, mostly discrete parts manufacturing and heavy manufacturing, warehousing and distribution, e-commerce fulfillment, and cross-docking logistics. So we do uh, an awful lot of applications, things like in manufacturing parts to line, you have lots of replenishment work, end of line in manufacturing, put away, dunnage, cross-docking, all these kinds of applications of pallet-sized moves. That's our bread and butter, and, th and that's what we're doing. We do a lot of tugging applications, tow tractors that are automated pulling carts up to 10,000 pounds. We get a, a lot of that in manufacturing and in logistics. And in fact, we're the global market share leader in automated tugging applications. That really is a sweet spot of ours. Hey, Jeff Christensen of Seagrid, thank you so much for helping us to understand how facilities are moving toward automation these days with all the pressures upon them, especially in the form of mobile robots and talking to me a little bit about Seagrid itself. Thanks very much for being with me. Thanks a lot, Bob. It's a pleasure. That was my conversation with Jeff Christensen of Seagrid, talking about the keys to successful warehouse automation. We thank Seagrid for sponsoring this episode. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. And also watch videos on our YouTube channel. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time. <laughs>